The prophet Isaiah wrote, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And on those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Have you ever thought that the people of Israel were walking in darkness? You see, there was no prophetic word in Israel for 400 years. Think of it, 400 years. God had not sent a prophet until John the Baptist. There was silence from God. Have you ever experienced the silence of God? Another way of thinking about it, the people had been waiting for a Messiah for 400 years. In fact, they had been waiting for generations upon generations. Do you like to wait? I don't. I don't like waiting. In fact, in the whole process of waiting, we can become frustrated. Oh, we can pace back and forth, and we begin to second-guess ourselves as to whether we're in the right place, if this is the right time, and what some of us do in that whole process. We give up. We leave. You see, Israel had been promised Prophet after prophet had said that God would send a Messiah. And so what did they do? They waited and waited and waited. And some of them, in fact, like us, give up and they just stop waiting. It's rather interesting that in the Passover, the annual event, where they remembered being freed from the bondage in Egypt, you find that they would leave a seat, a seat at the table, emptied, because they would hope that the Messiah would come. You see, hope is important. We all need hope. In fact, life is directionless without it. But waiting can drain our hope. And it was in the midst of this whole atmosphere that Jesus showed up. Because God would keep his promise of a Messiah. And that promise eventually would become the anchor of our soul. That hope would be unshakable. It would be lasting. You see, if the incarnation means anything today, it means that hope showed up. Remember what you saw back here? Hope is a person. But the way in which God kept his promise of a Messiah is unquestionably the most significant and remarkable event in history. It is without parallel. You see, God came into the world in human form. Did you hear what I just said? God came into the world in human form. You know, we have become so comfortable hearing that that we lose the impact of what we're hearing. You see that the creator of the world, the co-creator of the world, became like one of his creations. He became 
man. It's interesting, in the Old Testament, you're reading along in the Psalms, and when you read along in the Psalms, there's this little word that is connected at the end of it. It's called selah. Do you know what selah means? It's like what the writer had just said overwhelms him, and he stops and he says, I want you to think about it. Selah is, in the Word of God, means stop and think. God has become man. He has come to identify with us completely in our humanness. Now, theologians really use the term incarnation to describe the gracious voluntary act of the Son of God assuming human body. The word incarnation, however, you won't find it in the Bible. This afternoon you can look and you're not going to find the word incarnation because it is derived from the Latin, the Latin word in. And you know what in means? You just go in. And then there is the word carno, and carno is flesh. So you put those two words together and you get in the flesh, assuming flesh. That's what God literally did. He is clothed in flesh. In the Christian doctrine, if you looked up doctrine, the incarnation is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, became man. But he does something that is rather unique. He comes and completely identifies with us in his entirety. He is like you and me. He takes on human flesh. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Paul, in writing 1 Timothy 3.16, says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. Why did he call it a mystery? Why a mystery? Simply stated, the incarnation of Jesus Christ is outside of our human comprehension. We can't get our arms around it. And that's why God had to reveal. That's called revelation. God has taken the initiative of helping us to understand What occurred in Bethlehem? He has made it known by divine revelation given to us. And where do we receive it? In his word, the Bible. But you see, he's also given us his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit is that which enables us to understand which, humanly speaking, is not comprehensible. You see, in the Old Testament... God had revealed himself in many ways, in many ways. But you see, the greatest revelation of himself to us is the sending of his son. This is absolutely amazing. But you see, when we start thinking of the incarnation, we are prone to use two truths 
interchangeably. When you think of the Incarnation, what do you think of? I would probably tell you, think of the virgin birth. Virgin birth and Incarnation are different. They are not one and the same. While the two truths, while distinct and different, they're closely related to each other. And they stand in support of each other. But they are not the same term. You see, the incarnation of the Son of God is the fact of God becoming man. Okay? When you start talking about the virgin birth, what you're talking about is the manner in which God became man. So they're two different. Incarnation, we're really talking about God taking on human flesh. When we start talking about the virgin birth, we're talking about the means that God used to give us his son. Now, if Jesus Christ was not virgin birth, then what was he? He was not God in the flesh. He is only a man possessing the same sinful nature as every man since Adam possesses. Do you know that because Adam sinned, you know what's happened to our DNA? We have received the result of his disobedience, his sin. So all of us are prone to sin. Is there anyone here not prone to sin? Don't raise your hand. We don't want to be confession. Because if we did, I'd be the first one coming to the altar. Because why? We're all sinners. And if he was not virgin birth, then all, he would have inherited what? Man's sinful nature, which we all possess. In other words, if Jesus had a human father, he would have inherited what? A sinful nature. That's why Romans 5 says it this way. Therefore, just as, though one man, uh, just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, sin came into the world, and death through sin, then death spread to all, because all have sinned. You know what I have found in 40 years of ministry? No one has ever said to me they've never sinned. You know why? We know. We know. And it goes back. And so there had to be a virgin birth. And in other words, if Joseph was his father, he would have had his beginning in time rather than eternity. You recognize God has no beginning, no ending. God lives in the eternal present. If it came through Joseph, then we would have to say that Jesus' time began when? At his birth in Bethlehem. Remember, he's going to say to the leaders, you know, if you've seen me, then you've seen what? The Father. For the Father and I are one. He could not have made that statement if he was not virgin birth. And you find that he reiterated that over and over. The fact that his, he had no beginning. He has been eternal. In other words, the virgin birth does something. 
It underscores Jesus' uniqueness. And the fact of the incarnation lies in its ever-existing one laying aside his eternal glory to become man. You see, what Jesus had to do before he came to earth was to lay aside all of his rights, all of his privileges, all that he had with the Father, he had to lay it aside. Does not mean that he laid aside being God. He was still God, second member of the Trinity. But he did not act with all those prerogatives, all of those rights. He, in other words, limited himself in becoming like us. Have you realized that? He limited himself so that he would have to live totally as we live. So when we're just talking about the method of the incarnation, he just chose to come through miraculous conception in the womb of a virgin. Now that's heavy theology. But I would give to you from the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, where verse 14, it says this. Remember Genesis 1 says, in the beginning who? God. John 1.14 then says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. The word there refers to the eternal Son of God, who was in the beginning with who? God. And who himself is God. That's why John 1.1 1, 1, 14 verses earlier, you have that John writes this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Wow. The Word was God. So note, from eternity past until he took on humanity, you had that he existed in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship, with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. And like God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he had no material substance. It was not until the incarnation that Jesus entered into his creation as a human being. What were they like before Bethlehem? An eternal being, spirit, spirit. And so now what happens, he comes in to take on human flesh. Ever think of it this way? When he came into the world, he became a first century Jew. That's who he is. Never experienced. Now when we start talking about Jesus became, follow me with this, that doesn't mean that he ceased to be God. He did not forsake his divine nature. And next week, the emphasis is going to be on that aspect of his being. But he became man by taking on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. And it's essential that we understand this truth. 
that we recognize two things. Divinity and humanity are not mutually exclusive. But we have a problem with that. We usually come up and say, you're either this or you're this, but how can you be both? And that's what the Word of God is teaching us. That even though he was God, he laid aside his prerogatives. He didn't lay aside the fact that he was God. But he comes into the world, limiting himself, and becomes like man. But he is still the God-man. So when we talk about he became, I don't want us to think, well, he didn't, well, he stopped being God, which is not true. The eternal word became flesh. Now, when you think of the word flesh, what do you think of? And usually we just refer it to the human body. But he became entirely, entirely and makes up everything that makes up humanity. He became. In other words, he not only had a body, but he had a mind. He had emotions. He had will. Isn't that what you have? You have all of that. That's what he became. This is why in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 2.17, it says, For this reason he, had be, he was made like his brothers in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Have you uh, been tempted this week? Don't answer. <laughs> Jesus was tempted. Have you been ridiculed this week? For being a follower of Christ, Jesus was tempted. There is a reason why he went through all of that so that when he atoned for our sins, that's a big theological word which just simply means he's paid it in full. He took upon himself all of our sins. He paid for them. But he also had to come and submit himself to being like us. In order for Jesus to become our Savior, he had to be made in every respect except our sin. So you find that Hebrews 4.15 says it this way, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but here we have one who has been tempted in every way just like what? Us. I can remember the time when I was in high school and I came across that verse and that verse blew my mind. And I went to my pastor and I said to him, tell me about this verse. This says Jesus was tempted just like me. And I said, is that true? And he says, true. And I said, no, 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 no. You mean he was tempted to cheat? He was tempted? And I went through my whole litany. You know what his answer was? Yes. Just like us. Yet without what? 
sin. Can you get your mind around this? That the eternal God, just because of his position, leaves it all, comes into our world, and experiences what I experience on a day-by-day basis. So that he could identify with us. You're struggling this morning? Guess what? He struggled. Remember Gethsemane? That struggle. I know what you're asking me to do, Lord. We oftentimes know what the will of God is. We don't have a problem with it. End quote. Until it comes to what? Doing it. We got it all up here. We can give you the chapter. We can give you the verse. And now it says, do it, and we do what? <clears throat> That's what Jesus became. So that he could be that high priest. So that he could sympathize with us and our weaknesses. Oh, absolutely amazing. I want to give you a homework assignment. I don't know if your pastors give you a homework assignment, but I'm going to give you one. Very easy. I just want you to read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 10. Sometime today, and when it's midnight and you're in bed, I want you to hear, Read Philippians 2, 5 through 10. Because I want you to read it with a different viewpoint. Because Philippians 2, 5 through 10 tells us about his humanity. Tells us about his struggles. Tells us about what he was like while here on earth. And you know what you're going to read? I'll tell you what you're going to read before you read it. How's that? (laughs) That he served. He humbled himself. He was obedient. And think of this, youth. He was obedient. He was subject to whom? His parents. He was humbled. Do you realize scripture even says he had to learn obedience? He had to learn it. He was human. He laid aside all of his prerogatives. So he had to learn what it meant to say, yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. He had to do it. That's what Philippians 2 says. He goes on to say he was suffered. He suffered. Whoa. Not just a Calvary. The insult, the abuse. The character assassinations. Oh, you're the son of Joseph. You're the son of a... He experienced that. And yet we're told in Scripture that he was tempted. He was hungry. He was angry. He was disappointed. He loved. He was full of compassion. In other words, what all of that is telling us in Scripture is he was just like who? Just like us. Is that amazing? The incarnation, God becoming like us. Wow. And yet, when Mary held him in her arms, 
Who was she holding? You know, it's one thing to be said, as Mary was told, that she was going to give birth to the Messiah, the Son of God. Mary also was on a learning curve. When you really think about it, who is this that she's tending to? A high privilege. But you see, there is one thing that Jesus did in becoming like us. He came into the world, and if the incarnation means anything, it means he came into this world to give us hope. Hope. We can't live without it. You see, when he came in, he was giving to the children of Israel hope. The one that was promised back here finally shows up. The fulfillment of their hope. Now let's fast forward this way. Where do we stand? Like the children of Israel who was waiting for the Messiah. Who are we? We are like his children waiting for who? For him to show up. To call us back to himself. What do we need? We need hope. Just like the children of Israel. We need hope. What does hope do? Hope gives us the impetus to continue to move forward. Hope gives us the impetus to know that life has meaning. That there is more than just this. It's what we need on our journey is to understand that God has given us this hope. And you see, as the Apostle Paul says, this hope is going to be what? the anchor of my soul, the anchor of your soul. This hope is the incarnate Son of God came into my world, your world, to show us the way back to the Father. He comes in to give us hope that we can do it. We can live pleasing to God. Remember he said, I do nothing except what? what the Father says. Where has he revealed his word? Right here. So we have to be sons and daughters of what? The word. Living like the word says. And in that whole process, he gives us that hope. You see, even while we wait, we do so with hopeful expectation. So I say to you this morning, Selah. Let's pray. We are most grateful, our God, that you love us. You love us so much that you sent your Son so that we might know the way back to you. You sent your Son so that he would live in obedience to you and in the whole process become like us so that we have hope. My prayer, our Father, is for each one here that they have come to the point to embrace you and embracing you that they have discovered that hope which is the anchor of their soul. I pray, our Father, as we celebrate Christmas, we might do so 
and those who have a hope that is lasting, that it is enduring, and that which motivates us as we do life. I pray this in your loving name. Amen.